Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. I'm your host, Noah Tetzner, and I'm so excited to have you with us today. Before we begin today's episode, I would just like to encourage you to consider supporting the show by visiting our friends at Legacy Collectibles. Legacy Collectibles is a World War II and military firearms dealer that I personally trust and recommend for anyone listening who is fascinated by World War II and wants to own a piece of its history for themselves. While they specialize in World War II German pistols, Legacy Collectibles has firearms from countries all over the world, all of which can be easily viewed on their user-friendly website, and that's legacy-collectibles.com. In addition to their great website, if you're someone interested in learning more about the history behind some of these weapons, check out the Legacy Collectibles YouTube channel for informative videos curated by historical weapons experts. If you're interested in World War II weaponry and would like to consider supporting the podcast, head over to legacy-collectibles.com or simply follow the links in the description of this episode to both their website and YouTube channel. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Amid the ravages of economic depression, everyday Germans in the early 1930s were pulled to political extremes, both left and right. Then, in the spring of 1933, Germany transformed from a deeply divided republic into a one-party Nazi dictatorship. In January of 1933, Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. In March, he was granted plenary powers after the Weimar legislature adopted the Enabling Act. The Nazis moved with brutality and audaciousness to solidify a new political order. These few decisive months were the beginning of the end, the 100 days that inaugurated Hitler's thousand-year Reich. Joining me to discuss the rise of Adolf Hitler is W.D. and Sarah Trowbridge, professor of history at the University of Illinois. He's the author of an award-winning book titled Life and Death in the Third Reich, and a new book, Hitler's First Hundred Days, When Germans Embraced the Third Reich. My guest, of course, is Peter Fritzsche. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, your new book, Hitler's First Hundred Days, When Germans Embraced the Third Reich, deals with Adolf Hitler's rise to power. Before we get into the conditions of 1930s Germany, I want to talk to you about the individual known as Adolf Hitler. Could you give our listeners an explanation as to how the failed Austrian artist became so involved through Nazi ideology and uh, radical political activism? One of the most important things about Hitler is his total identification with Germany. Uh, there's a photograph of him in Munich at the beginning of World War I, where he is seen among the crowds uh, celebrating the patriotic moment uh, when Germans mobilized for war, presumably a defensive war. Uh, and after that, in 1914, he, he, he joined the army um, and remained there for four years, wounded, won the Iron Cross. But his identification with the German cause 
was uh, forged in the war and, and remained complete. He identified himself with Germany, and ultimately, uh, Germans identified with him as the embodiment of Germany. Had he not been a veteran of this war, and indeed just a, a lowly uh, corporal, um, he would not have had the success uh, that he had. Fascinating. Now, how did he first become involved with Nazism? Uh, is that something that was afoot, you know, post World War One Austria? Um, where did he first encounter this sort of um, ideology? The German Revolution of 1918, November 1918, created uh, a great talking machine. And all sorts of partisans from all sorts of sides felt mobilized. When we think of the revolution, we think of socialists, we think of communists, but it was also anti-Semites, it was German nationalists, it was people who wanted to have a unified Germany plus Austria. All sorts of people felt emboldened to speak, and that was really the heritage, the legacy of the revolution, was this mobilization of public opinion from all sides. Most of it was socialist, but much of it was also nationalist and anti-Semite um, that didn't exist in the decorous uh, Wilhelmine Empire before 1914. Hitler himself was an uh, army agent tasked with uh, scouting out some of these nationalist groups, but instead of being a spy, he became a partisan. Interesting. Well, Germany in the 1930s was in, quite frankly, a miserable state. The war reparations brought about by the Treaty of Versailles, political unrest, hyperinflation, and the Great Depression that began in the United States are only a few of the events that occurred in post-World War I Germany. At what point did Nazi ideology secure a foothold in the minds of the German people as a solution to these types of problems? Well, Hitler uh, and the Nazis never really got more than 40%, let's say 50% of, of Germans. And there were lots of precursors uh, to the Nazis uh, before the actual Nazis uh, really had their breakthrough. And, and the, there were some groups that were more nationalist, some were more anti-Semite, some were more um, status concerned, some didn't want ex-socialists. Hitler's National Socialists were, were extremely welcoming and open uh, to all social groups, including workers, uh, accepted ex-communists, accepted ex-socialists. And this breadth, this kind of promise of their appeal, it in itself became appealing. So while there are lots of fascist-type movements that we see popping up in Germany in the uh, years after the revolution, uh, it, was, uh, it was Hitler's National Socialists who really found the right combination of kind of marrying nationalism, but also inviting workers and not being nostalgic, not wanting to go back to the Kaiser, but foreseeing really a Third Reich, a new future for Germany that was technologically modern, um, but in a way, in its soul, uh, genuinely German. And they didn't think they were radical. They didn't think in terms of left and right. They thought in terms of surface depth. 
And they thought that the Weimar Republic, the revolution, the so-called socialists and Jews who had controlled that revolution was non-German surface. And they were going to a German depth, a real Germany. So, and I think this is, goes for the voters too. Many people did not think of the Nazis as extreme, but as genuine. Now, in terms of the sort of, you know, target demographic of, of voters and supporters of, of the Nazi party, you mentioned that they managed to contrive an appeal to, you know, a, a vast sort of array of different types of people. But is it in any way possible to say sort of, you know, the, the types of people that, that Nazism was of, of particular interest to, you know, sort of their, their base votership, if you like, you know, are these very charismatic workers? Are these sort of people, perhaps former imperialists of the, the older generation? The base of the base is middle-class Protestants. And while the fathers of that milieu voted for traditional conservative parties, the sons and daughters voted for the Nazis. And the Nazis found their earliest success among young people, and particularly among students. So this is, uh, uh, this is the generation of the uh, sons and daughters. And um, one says that the electorate, the Nazi electorate, had a middle-class belly, particularly a Protestant middle-class belly. And that's where they first succeeded. And that was, that was always their stronghold after uh, 1930. But the Nazis were effective in broadening out. And they probably had um, one-fourth or one-third of the working class behind them. Uh, among uh, Catholics, most Catholics voted for Catholic parties. But those Catholics who didn't vote for a Catholic party um, most of them voted for the Nazis. So the Nazis could argue that they were what the Germans call a people's party that embraced not only the Protestant middle-class base, but it expanded out to workers and not just rural workers, but also industrial workers in the cities and to Catholics. And no other party had this social breadth and certainly didn't uh, create the social breadth with the speed with which the Nazis did and in the number of precincts that the Nazis did. Now, I have to ask, how significant was, you know, religion? You mentioned, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism uh, to the German public during the 1930s. You know, I, I guess how, how secular uh, was Germany as a nation? The um, ideology of Nazism is, you know, obviously against the, the Christian religion. So really, how did, how did those two things, religion and Nazi ideology, sort of conflict in the conscious of a German voter? My quick answer would be, you, you are talking about a secular polity. Um, but Protestants were split. Uh, some people, some Protestants thought that uh, the Nazis would inaugurate a, a new reformation in which there would be a deepening of Protestant faith. Other Protestants believed that the entire Protestant religion should uh, orient itself to the racist axioms of, of the Nazis. Uh, Catholics were much more, uh, uh, real Catholics were much more careful because uh, God's creatures uh, need to be respected. 
And if one was a Catholic, it didn't matter if one had Jewish, if he or she had Jewish grandparents. But on the whole, I think that the activists, the real pushers behind the Nazis, were not first religious, trying to protect Protestantism or Catholicism. If anything, they wanted to overcome this divide in Germany between Protestant and Catholic and really celebrate the new religion, which was the nation, uh, the Germans, the German people. Is it fair or unfair to say that that Nazism, as opposed to the Nazi party, uh, became extremely popular in post-World War I Germany? In other words, uh, were the saving actions of the Nazi party that people thought would solve all of their problems of great interest, or was it Nazi ideology itself, you know, racial purity, German expansion, sort of what is that distinction between Nazi ideology and the, the Nazi party? I think at first the attraction is that uh, the, the, the original name, the actual name of the Nazi party is the German, uh, the National Socialist German Workers Party. And in a way, that says everything. It's going to include workers. It's not going to be the old-fashioned conservative parties anymore that rely on deference. Uh, it's, it's a populist party. It's a party of the people. And um, it is definitely nationalist, and Germany's interest is paramount. But there has to be a new social compact that brings people together and that, um, that forges the people in all of its differences, Catholic, Protestant, workers of the brain, workers of the fist. And that sense of unity, breaking through from the old class-bound divisions of pre-1914 Kaiser's Germany was in itself tremendously appealing. After that comes the idea that Germans are a racial stock that needs to be groomed, that needs to be healed, that needs to be careful about its uh, purity. And then after that is the uh, expansion of Germany so that it has a continental economic empire comparable to the United States. But the first thing is the healing of the divisions and the creation of a kind of German unity. This appealed to many people, not all, um, but it appealed to many people. And the Nazis were dynamic. Their violence signaled their dynamicism and their vigilance and their commitment. Uh, and they appealed to young people. And then the sight of their appeal to young people was in itself appealing because it promised the future. Before we continue our conversation, I'd just like to share with you a brief message from our friends at Legacy Collectibles. On this podcast, we talk about the great figures and defining moments that shaped the greatest conflict in human history. If you're someone like me who is deeply passionate about the Second World War, Legacy Collectibles provides so many opportunities for you to own a piece of the war for yourself. Do be sure to check out their easily accessible website, legacy-collectibles.com, after you finish listening to this episode. Well, earlier you mentioned that that Hitler and the Nazis really never overcame sort of a 40% 
um, 40% of the votership, you know, maybe even 50%. Uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar with post World War One German politics, uh, what was the other, uh, you know, 50 to 60%? And how did the Nazis go about securing power uh, in light of the opposition? The most dramatic change in German politics between the end of World War One and the revolution and Hitler's coming to power 14 years later is that the support for the Republic went from two thirds to less than one third. Supporters for the Republic were socialists and Catholics on the whole. And they were able to bring in fellow travelers uh, in the early 20s. And then those peeled off in the later 1920s. So that support for the Republic existed, and then it eroded. The Nazis are the great beneficiaries of this, not because they're conservative, not because they don't uh, agree with the idea of a revolution, but they want their own revolution. They want a new revolution. And so they begin to attract more and more supporters. But they never get over 40%. Even in the last elections, which were semi-free, they and their coalition partners only got 52%. Now, that's a lot. And for complicated reasons, it, it allows them to pass emergency legislation. It allows them to take over the police forces. Um, but because they only got 52% in the end, their huge support, which is represented by the 52%, their huge dynamic, the enthusiasm, is always combined with the requirement for coercion in order to um, manage or subdue the big third of the nation that never intended to vote for them. And that's why you have concentration camps and mass rallies happening at the same time. Yes, indeed, a very interesting uh, comparison and, and dynamic there. But what were the initial ways the Nazis sought to solidify their new political state? And I mean, you kind of answered this in the, the last question, but how did the German people react to these often brutal and violent efforts? You know, did, did you see people, you know, um, very basically, you know, um, in hiding, avoiding the Nazis at all costs? Did you see you know, brother against brother, sort of what was the, the, um, the situation there? It's a wonderful question because you did have brother against brother. The splits were inside families and, of course, inside neighborhoods. One is, uh, I think there are three parts to why the Nazis were able to um, seem as though they, they were the only possibility for Germany. One is, Their supporters were extremely enthusiastic, extremely uh, on the streets, um, felt that the Third Reich was at hand. Then they created the choreography of mass acclamation. Uh, They did so through their rallies on the streets, but they also did so through the social media. And the social media at that time was the radio. And people believed the radio as more authentic than the newspapers because you don't edit the radio. The radio only records. And so the cheers, the chants, the sounds of the marches 
through the radio that the Nazis controlled as the government party, suggested to people that everybody was for the Nazis. And so people who were wavering joined up, and people who were opposed were extremely intimidated. And then the, and then the Nazis used violence. And the Nazis' use of violence, while some people were appalled, was also justified in the minds of many people. Because the feeling was that to get back to the national unity that had existed at the beginning of World War I, and so I say the year 1914, to get back to that national unity and exuberance, one had to refight the revolution of 1918, but this time win it, make sure that the Marxists, the socialists, the Jews did not win. And so it was clear that you had to use violence. You had to win the Civil War in order to get to the Third Reich. That was the key to the Nazis' strategy. And many people signed off or signed on uh, to the use of that violence, that is to say, fight 1918 again in 1933, in order to get to the ideal of 1914. So many people justified uh, the violence against Marxists, against communists, because these people were were non-German and were the enemy that had to be defeated, was the surface slime that had to be carved out in order to get to the genuine depth of Germany. How did Hitler and the Nazis market their campaign to young people? How did they market their campaign to Germany's youth? You know, one is often uh, reminded of sort of the Hitler youth and those other programs, but really, how did they really, um, you know, get inside the the minds of young people, perhaps get inside the the schools of Germany and um, really, um, you know, drum up this this massive support of Germany's youth? Well, the first part of my answer would be that there was already a predisposition, and uh, the Nazis were only the mo- most effective guardians of this anti-Republican nationalist spirit that looked into the future rather than into the past. And so they, there was not, it wasn't a question of brainwashing. Um, these terms like the people's community, the German race, uh, the German nation, the German folk, these were very, very current. And so the Nazis just mobilized it better. They were ceaseless campaigners. When elections ended, they held a rally the next day. But they constantly emphasized the, what they called the national community. It's called in Germany, or people's community, called in German the Volksgemeinschaft, that would include workers and that would uh, put the collective interest of Germany above and beyond the individual. And for all the individuals in Germany who were suffering, you have 40% unemployment, people identified with the nation. They saw their own tribulations through the tribulations of the German nation since the end of the war, the defeat, 2 million dead, the inflation, now the Great Depression. Uh, They identified with this collective body 
And that's what the Nazis drummed in. We, we, we are going to serve the collective and therefore you will prosper. But to do that, we have to fight a war, not against France and not against Russia. We have to fight the war against the Marxists first, and only then will health be restored uh, to the German nation. So it was vigilance and then this ideal of the future that would be more egalitarian. They, in fact, used words like social justice. Adolf Hitler is famous for his, quote, inner circle of henchmen who carried out the missions of Nazism uh, before and during World War II. When did he first establish, I'm hesitant to use the word team because I know he was paranoid as well, uh, of such leaders, and are they responsible for securing his rise to power? The rise to power of Hitler is really the voting block, the voting base. But he also had a huge number of activists. Even when he didn't have so many votes, he had he had grassroots activists, uh, people who were uh, completely committed to the cause of Germany and operated well beyond their local precincts. And these thousands, tens of thousands of activists, I think, are, are really the most important. And they are in each neighborhood and each village and each town are, are the keys to, to how you would mobilize uh, um, 100 people or 200 people. But very early on, he also attracted uh, very dedicated uh, fascists. Um, and, and these were relatively unknown men uh, who became great uh, and powerful through the Nazi party. So I'm thinking of people like Goebbels, uh, the propaganda chief, or Himmler, uh, the police chief. Um, a partial exception to that sort of rule is Goering. Hermann Goering was a decorated fighter pilot. He was the uh, last squadron leader of Richthofen, Richthofen's famous uh, flying circus from World War I. And uh, he also threw in his... Uh, Cards, uh, cards with the Nazis, but mostly it was new men, young men, born in 1902, born in 1904, born in 1899, who were not known in German politics. This is a completely new force. In a way, they are the legacies of the revolution. They are a new generation, just like the socialists were. And there was no going back to the old Germany, and they didn't use the symbols of the old Germany to legitimate themselves. In fact, in Hitler's trial, he appeared as a civilian in a suit, whereas co-defendants were in uniform and frock coats, and that earned Hitler a lot of uh, points. And he admitted that he was a traitor to the Republic. So it was these new young men that seemed to represent a new Germany, just not a socialist Germany, that were enormously attractive. And then by after 33, they became very powerful, very merciless men. Well, Peter, the last question I'll ask you today is simply this. A good number of historians have studied Hitler's rise to power in the events of post-World War I Germany. 
As a particular expert in this field, I know you've been uh, researching it and writing about it for many years. Your book, Life and Death in the Third Reich, won some very prestigious awards. What are some details of this historical uh, uh, time period and series of events that people tend to overlook or not give enough attention in your view? Well, I would say there are two things. Number one is the appeal of national ethnic identity remains very strong. It's not always there, but it can be summoned up in what we thought was globalization in the first years of this new millennium, and that the nation state was going to be uh, uh, overshadowed by new and hybrid or transnational identities has not come to pass. And when we remember about whenever the populace got to vote whether they wanted to join the European Union, many many countries, Holland and France and others, said no. National identity and national allegiance, especially when it's ethnicized, remains very, very powerful. Number two, when we think about these events, our first word is brainwash. Our second word is um, overpowered or uh, coward. Or they're, they're, people are intimidated and scared. And while this is true, not the brainwash part, but the scared part is true, there's a lot of desire. There's a lot of emotional, heartfelt desire for this ethnic national solution. And Germans did not become Nazis simply because of the Great Depression, simply because of the emergency. Uh, it was a much uh, longer-term trend that is, uh, that is based in ideas, that's based in beliefs, and that's based in ideology. And so when we think of the extremes that we don't like and the alternatives we don't want, we have to realize that the other side believes in this stuff, and they believe it with their hearts. Well, for all of our, our listeners out there, you can find a copy of Peter's new book, Hitler's First Hundred Days When Germans Embraced the Third Reich, uh, via the link in the description of today's episode. And I, I do encourage you to to pick up a copy, as I've, I've very much enjoyed reading the book myself. Well, Peter, I very much enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And thank you. Goodbye, Noah. Thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. It's been such a pleasure having you with us. Before you go, though, I would just like to encourage everyone to go to your favorite podcasting platform, wherever you're listening to the show right now, and consider leaving us a positive rating and review if you've enjoyed today's episode. Additionally, i just like to encourage everyone to consider supporting the podcast by visiting our friends at Legacy Collectibles. Legacy Collectibles is an antique World War II firearms dealer that I trust and is a must-check-out for anyone who listens to the podcast and wants to own a piece of World War II for themselves. While they specialize in World War II German pistols, Legacy Collectibles prides themselves in having a user-friendly website where you can browse a vast array of authentic and original military firearms. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to the Legacy Collectibles website at legacy-collectibles.com or simply follow the link in the description of today's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Do be sure to join us right here again next week on Stories of the Second World War. Thank you.